Good morning, Foothill Church. Today's scripture is found in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. Please stand for the word of the Lord. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And to the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it. Each, one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, Exodus chapter uh, 16. Uh, I don't know if you've read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is, is a, you know, it's, it's one of these staples of Western literature. I believe Pilgrim's Progress has uh, the only book that has sold more in human history is the Bible. Uh, if you know the story, it's, it's, you've got this, this uh, character named Christian who has been rescued from the city of destruction, and then he goes on this journey, and he's headed toward the celestial city, and 
along the way, he runs into all these different perils. He, he finds himself caught within the slew of despond. He meets a guy named Worldly Wise, who is this person who says, hey, just be practical. You don't need God in this life. And all of these different twists and turns, right? In other words, this is an allegory, and it's an obvious allegory of the Christian life. And it's an allegory that's saying, hey, Christian, there is a journey to this. There are twists. There are turns. There are things you didn't expect because it's not a straight line from your salvation to your glorification, from the time you're delivered from slavery to the time that you inherit what God has in store for us. That this is the journey. And so this is Exodus, isn't it? We've told you since the beginning that Exodus is a story of salvation. It's showing us, it's picturing for us that we are not there yet. And so we live in these times in between our rescue from slavery. If you're a Christian, you've been rescued out of slavery to sin. You are on your way to the celestial city, but it's not a straight line. And there are twists and there are turns and there are times of refreshing and there are plenty of times of suffering. Uh, so we saw that, right? We've seen that. Last week, Lucas took us where you had the bitter water and God provided sweet water. And now we say they got to rest beside the waters of Elam for maybe a few weeks, right? This is this time of refreshing, but that's not the normal part of the Christian life. The normal part of the Christian life is a little bit difficult or maybe very, very difficult, but what's interesting is you find out as you read scripture, it's the wilderness, it's the hardship that actually grows people. That's where you see the greatest growth is in the times of suffering and trials and hardship. And some of you could say, man, I've been there. You know, maybe I'm going through it right now and, and you're not sure what God is doing, but be rest assured, this is what's up. Now, when that happens, how do we respond? Maybe we respond a lot like the children of Israel. And so I want to just walk through this passage with you and point out a few things. So notice, first of all, we get to verse 1, and the people mumble, they grumble against God, right? Now let's, let's think about this a little bit. So, so you're going to see as you, as, as you listen to Allison read that, I count, by my count, in the first 11 verses, Moses uses the word grumble, grumbling, grumbled eight times. Now, obviously, this is a big part of this passage, the people grumbling, and they're grumbling against God. And what's amazing about this is when you think about it, they have seen signs and wonders that most of, well, not any of us are ever going to see. Nobody's going to see water part like that ever again, right? We've not seen plagues like that. And God, God doing these miraculous things that he did, and yet here we are just a few days removed by the time we get to the waters of Mara, and they're complaining, they're grumbling. God refreshes them, moves them out into the wilderness of sin. By the way, don't make too much of that word sin. That's actually a region. It has nothing to do with the English word sin, okay? It's just saying there's this area and takes them out into the wilderness, and they start grumbling again, over and over, they grumble against God, right? Last week, it was about water. This week, it's about food. Um, now, uh, Jerry Bridges is a Christian leader, and he wrote a book several years ago called uh, Respectable Sins, these sins that Christians, you know, don't find, they're not that bad, they're respectable. So think about it. There are, there are, there are sins that we as Christians will not tolerate, right? We, no adultery, no murder, no lying, no stealing, and rightly so. The Bible says those are sins, so we plant our flag and say you can't do that. 
But there are all kinds of sins that we as believers tend to just overlook, tend to tolerate and say, it's okay. Pride, envy, gluttony, and perhaps grumbling. Like, we, we, you know, that's just so-and-so, right? He's just that way, right? He's being authentic to himself. He just speaks his mind. He says what he wants to say. He's, you know, it's just, 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 it's okay. It's gonna be fine. That's just the way it is. No, it, no, it's sin. And what you need to see is that God takes grumbling very seriously. Now, do you know Christians who are grumblers, Right, these are people who are like chronic complainers. They are never satisfied. There's nothing you can do to please them. They tell you all the time what they're upset about. They tend to be highly critical. And you need to see from Exodus and other places that God doesn't just write these things off as respectable or minor. Now, now make sure you understand, there's a difference between, say, disagreement. Well, you can disagree, right? There's a way to disagree that's loving, it's caring. I, I'm not trying to just grumble, right? I, or, or lament over sin, or even sometimes constructive criticism. But be careful, because very often those things can move over into grumbling. And what is grumbling? Ultimately, as you're going to see here, grumbling is looking at God. What makes it so egregious and so treasonous is that it's basically saying, God, I don't like my life. I don't like the direction you took me. I don't like what's happening right now. I, I want to control this. I think I could manage this world and I think I could manage my life better than you are. That's grumbling. And very often, it's because you are disappointed with how life is turning out for you. It's not what you expected. And because God has violated your expectations, you grumble. And listen, you grumble against God. Now, maybe you don't think you're doing that. But that's precisely what's going to happen here with Moses. How, how do the people grumble against God? Well, let's look at a few things. Look down at verse 3. Okay, at the very end, they're saying, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. They go on to say just ridiculous things. We sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full when we were in Egypt. Oh, yeah, and we were slaves. We forgot about that part. And then they say this. You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, do you understand how blasphemous this is? This is looking at God and saying, God, all those miracles, all those promises, all those things you do, we know what you're up to and you are up to no good and it's to bring us out here to slay us in the wilderness. There is no way you could be trying to do as Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. That's not what they're doing. They're looking and saying, God, you're, you're, you're on the hunt, man. You are, you are trying to take us down. So they impugn God's motives. You ever done this? God, what are you up to? I'm going through this hard time right now. You obviously hate me. You obviously want to kill me. Never, never 
God is only always, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is only always doing things for your good. But you complain against God because you think you know better. The second way they grumble against God is they grumble against his leaders. You hear it twice. Twice Moses is going to say this, right? At the end of verse 7, right? What are we that you grumble against us? At the end of verse 8, your grumbling is not against us. It's against the Lord, right? You're not, you're not grumbling. What, what do people do, right? Let me, let me just say this. And, and maybe you can write this down as a principle. People who are happy in God Rarely, I can't even think of an exception, whine. People who are happy in God never whine or grumble. And one of the signs that you are unhappy in God is you're a grumbler. And what you've got to do when you grumble like that is you've got to find somebody to hang that on, somebody to take it out on. So very often you'll take it out on Christian leaders. Listen, this happens in the church all the time. People cycle through churches because they're like, you know what? No, you offended me. Now I'm mad. I'm going somewhere else. Oh, guess what? About three years into it, they'll make you mad. You're on somewhere else. Some of you have been Christians for 10, 20 years and have already been a part of seven, eight churches because something's happening that has offended you. I don't like where you stand on X. I don't like what you said about Y and I'm out. Look, I, I hope, listen, I'm not saying I've never said anything stupid from up here. Surely I have. I speak for a living and where there's an abundance of words, there's foolishness. But at the end of the day, you're not mad at me if I say things like, uh, I'm gonna preach to you about the sexual ethics of scripture. That's not my opinion. That's God's. If I'm going to talk to you about the fact that there, there could be racism or injustice, look, just read the prophets. It's everywhere. But people get upset and I don't like it and I'm out. You're not grumbling against me or Lucas or church leaders. You're grumbling against God. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the Lowell's out there who have been in this church for 50 years, the, the good ones, 50, 60, I mean, something just, you guys have been here like since you were born. Um, think of that, think of that. Through the ups and downs, through the stupidity of things that come out of my mouth and they're staying. Your grumbling is not good. And you're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God, right? This is, listen, th 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 this, is, this is one of the things God's saying, you're, you're, you, you, you've got to recognize this. This is not coming from a place. You're not mad at Chris or Ike or Lucas or Stephen or whatever. Ultimately, things aren't turning out the way you like and so you grumble. And so you grumble at church and then you get in your growth group and you grumble there and then you close the curtains in your house and you grumble to your spouse and then you get on social media and you grumble there. You want to hear how seriously God takes this? Jude, Jude is one chapter long. 
And right in the heart of it, in Jude, in Jude 14, you hear this. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. There's an army that God has to do what? To execute judgment on all, listen to this, and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You get the picture? This is ungodliness. These are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so no wonder Paul in Philippians chapter two is gonna tell us, do all things. Do you hear that Christian? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and pure, citizens, children of God, um, uh, 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 without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Grumbling isn't, listen how discerning I am. You're not proving how smart you are. You're not proving how discerning you are, how if everybody would do things the way you did them, then things would run smoothly if they all thought the way you thought. You're being ungodly. You're not behaving like one of the children of God without blemish. See this? This is no minor matter in God's eyes. The God I think I know better. I think you ought to put me in charge. It's arrogant. It's wicked. Now, let's keep going because how does God respond to this grumbling in Exodus 16? This is amazing to me. Okay, now, now let's keep going. Look at verse four. He says, to, the Lord says to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what does God do in response to people's grumbling? He tested his people. Now, understand there's a couple of kind of tests. A teacher will test a student because they're trying to figure out what that student knows or doesn't know. That's not God. God's not mystified. He's not wondering, I wonder what Chris, do you know this or do you not know this? God knows it all. There's another kind of test that says, I'm testing you so you know what's there. I want, I want you to see what's going on in your own heart. I, I want you to see what's happening in your own life. And this is the kind of testing. It's a test of character. It's a test of their own hearts. How much do they understand that they need him? In fact, Deuteron Deuteronomy uh, chapter eight, listen to this. I'll just read a part of this. The whole, commandment, the, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now don't read that as saying God's going, I don't know what's in their heart. No, this is him saying, testing you so you know what's in your heart. And he goes on to talk about how he fed them in the wilderness with the manna. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm testing so that you know what's going on in your heart and you figure it out. Like, look, 
I, I, uh, some of you know Matt and Nicole Klingler and they own Village Fitness and, the, and, and, and Michelle and I will go there. Some of you go there and, and what do they do? Every, every single day they're riding, kind of they're, they're testing you. How, how much can you lift? How much can you run? How much can you do? And you're, you're sort of getting a record back of that. That's not so that Matt and Nicole and the coaches there can know what they don't know about me. It's so that I can know, so that I can look and go, where am I? And this is what God is doing. He's testing their character and saying, man, can you bear up under this, right? Listen to Alec Motyer. I'm gonna quote him a couple times. He's a Old Testament scholar. When God tests us, it's a different matter, he says. He does so by bringing us into situations which call for trust and the endurance of obedience that proves our trust is real so that by the exercise of faith in the face of new challenges, our trust in him can develop and mature until we come to see that everything that happens to us is under divine supervision and is brim full of divine purposes for good. That's awesome. This is why God tests us. This is why God puts us into trials, right? So, so n- last week, no water, God provides. This week, no food. And the question that he's asking to Israel is this, will you trust me? We might say it this way. God's saying to them, I created this problem It's my job to get you out. I apologize, some of you have heard this story before. When when I was in seminary, um, I was a lawyer, I was practicing law and that was what allowed me to pay for my family and me to go to seminary and and 9-11 hit, I lost my job. Um, And I mean, when it rains, it pours, I had no ability to provide for my family the car breaks down, the, uh, I don't know, the, the condenser unit up in the attic starts leaking all over and breaks. And I'm like, God, what are you up to? Man, I'm trying to serve you. And I'll never forget, like, I'm, I mean, I am in the bottom of the barrel dumps and I'm walking across campus to go to a class and one of my dear professor friends, his name is Bill Lawrence, sees me in the parking lot and he goes, Chris, and he walks over to me and he puts his arm around me. And he goes, Chris, I prayed for you today. And I'm thinking, well, thank you. That's, that's really kind of you. And he says this, I'm praying you don't miss the joy in this. And I'm like, too late, right? <laughs> because I ain't feeling it. And then he says this, Chris, God got you into this. It's his job to get you out. And he goes, Chris, in a year and a half, I had a year and a half left, year and a half, we're gonna be standing, we're gonna be sitting over there in the Mitchell cafeteria, eating lunch, and God's gonna have seen you through. And I'm thinking, okay, well, Bill, I hope you're right. Bill was exactly right. It was God's problem. He put me there. It was his job to get me out of there. And he did. And I'm not saying, I don't know how it's gonna work for you. You just have to recognize that when Paul says all things work together for good, he really genuinely means this. That all things will work together for your good. The test of the Christian life, this is, It's as hard and as simple as the old hymn we used to sing when I was a kid, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. There it is, that's the Christian life. 
Will you trust God? Will you believe him? Do you believe that God is saying, look, I'm working for your good, Israel. I'm working for your good, Christian. See, that's the question he's asking to Israel. And guess what the answer that Israel's gonna give to God? No, we don't believe that. No, no, we actually think you're, you're working to kill us. And so they don't obey. And what do they do? So God says, okay, you're going to go out and you're going to gather. And you gather this much, you gather no more. They disobey. Some of them go out and they gather more than they needed. And they find it's gone. It's rotten. and the, it's, It stinks. Some go out. It's supposed to be a time to gather for the Sabbath. They do the same thing, right? They keep disobeying God. They keep disregarding what God has said. They're not going to obey his law. They're wanting to store up and hoard. Isn't this what we do? God has graciously provided. And what I think is, look, I don't want to have to depend on you every day. I don't want to have to depend on you in this life. So I'm going to hoard what you give to me because then it makes me less dependent. And I don't like being put in that position. Now, now by the way, God will commend over and over and over saving and being wise with money and all that kind of stuff. But here's a moment, and he's going to do this in all of our lives, whether it be in your finances or elsewhere, where he's going to look at you and say, will you trust me today for what I say I'll provide for you? Um, in chapter 15, Lucas told us that God says, I'm your healer. In chapter 16, He's saying essentially this, I'm your provider. And, and will you trust me to provide for you, right? Listen, he would say to live in the wilderness, Christian, to, to walk through this journey called life where there are twists and turns, you have got to believe that I'll be true to my word, that I keep every promise I make. Listen, you just, go, go talk to some of the gray heads in this room who have walked with Jesus, and I promise you, they will tell you, God always keeps his promise. Always keeps his promises. Now, what does he do? L look at verse four, because he does this in a really interesting way. It says, it says at the end of um, verse four, uh, he says, uh, I I'm gonna test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Uh, that, that, by the way, that word law is the word that you, maybe you've heard, the Torah. The, the Torah is the, 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 the first five, but Torah just means law. And he says, whether they'll walk in my Torah or not. It's like God is saying, I'm giving this sort of proto-law. I'm going to test them with this one little thing of just collect this and do it on these days and seeing how prepared their hearts are for the big law that's coming in chapter 20 and then comes in Leviticus and Numbers. I'm going to test them, but watch what this law is. This is what's so mind-blowing about God. How gracious and amazing. What is the law? Look at verse 4 again. Go, go up to the top. He says, I am about to rain bread from heaven. Like, do you hear what this is? It's this extravagant grace. I am going to pour it out on them. How does God respond to grumbling, whining, complaining Christians like some of us? I am going to be exceedingly gracious to you. I would never do that. Right? You'd want to go, look, move out of the way, Moses, because lightning bolts are just about to start. 
And he says, I'm not going to rain lightning bolts. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. I'm going to be exceedingly kind and exceedingly gracious. Listen, I think there's a principle here that Paul tells us in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded. Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The idea behind that word is like, it, you know, one abounded, one super abounded is the idea. And so, so how? How, how? How did God superabound in his grace to Israel in the midst of their grumbling? Well, I want to give you two things, and I'm just going to give you one of them today and the other one next week when we finish up chapter 16. But just, just this is the biggie right here. God gave his people meat and bread. Now, now let's just think about this for a moment. He gives them quail. He gives them manna. Manna, by the way, is just a Hebrew word, manach, which, which literally means what is that? You saw that in scripture. It's like, what are we looking at? Will somebody please tell me what this is on the ground? That's the idea. Um, but here's what I want you to see. This is what amazes me about this is that God, before any of this happens, has a plan for their deliverance. Now, what are some of the lessons in the granting of, you know, they're starving. By the way, they've probably burned through all their reserves by this point. We're somewhere between 45 days and 70 days post-Exodus here. They have no more reserves. There's no more food probably. And so what's the lesson? Let me give you a couple lessons I think we learned from this. Number one is there's no such thing as an untested faith. That's just simply never gonna happen to anybody. I, I heard, I heard a, an evangelist years ago when I was in high school, I think it was, or college, and he said this. He had the audacity to say, I am a Christian because it works. And I thought to myself, baloney. Christianity doesn't work. If what you mean by that is it just makes your life better, Christianity screws up your life. Christianity puts struggles in your heart that weren't there before. I'm not saying it's not wonderful. See, it doesn't work. God tests his people. And he brings us hardships and he brings us trials. But here's what I want you to see. In all of the wilderness of our life, in all the suffering, in all the trials, there are the deep purposes of God working themselves out in our lives. Listen, there is no such thing. I love this in God's economy. There is no such thing as meaningless, pointless suffering ever. All things work together. Bad things, horrible things. God is weaving this tapestry, and we said it before, like, we're under the loom, right? It looks like this mad tangle of threads, and we have no idea that on top we're going to look and go, oh, I had no idea. This is what God's doing. There's no such thing as pointlessness. God's saying, will you be obedient? Will you be faithful? Will you recognize that you have a need that only I can fill and lean into me? No such thing as an untested faith. But there's a second thing I want you to see is that God providentially cares for his people. Now, we are surprised, aren't we, by the twists and turns of life. 
Like, like the, the, the Proverbs say, man plans his way, the Lord directs his steps. There's a lot of lessons in there, but this is one of them that I think, hey, I'm going to do this. This is what my life's going to look like. And very often I'm disappointed because it doesn't live up to expectations because God's directing my steps. And often, hear me, Christian, those steps are going to lead you straight out into the place of growth, which is the wilderness. You never signed up for it. You didn't want it. But you find yourself there. But, but, but he's not surprised by the twists and the turns that are on our journey to the celestial city. He's just not. I planned this. I, I, I did this. I, left to yourself, you'd be lost. But you're never left to yourself, are you? He's always with you. God has planned our course. He's made and knows our way and already has provision in place, which is why David's going to say in Psalm 18, this God, right? The God we serve, the Christian God, the biblical God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for those who take refuge in him. Amen. Now, uh, there's this debate among scholars of whether the events in chapter 16 are miraculous or part of God's providence. Let me talk about this briefly, okay? There are some, and by the way, conservative, that will say this is all God providentially caring. You understand what providence is? Providence is that God has designed his creation in such a way that it, it is, it, he, he meticulously cares for people. Not everything God does is a miracle. But every now and again, God interrupts nature and, and overthrows the laws of nature and we get a miracle. So now, here's why I say this. We have to be very careful, and I, look, I, I, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I don't want to make too little. We throw around the word miraculous way too much. We'll say things like, that baby is a miracle. No, it's not. It's precious. It's wonderful. It's amazing what God does. But it's how he designed his creation to work. That's providence. That's God going, I'm going to design a woman and a man. They'll come together and then this woman's body will just do bizarre, crazy things that allow her to have a baby. That is not a miracle. It's a miracle when you have a plum tree that bears dogs. <laughs> That's a miracle because plum trees don't have dogs, right? So, so it's this, this turning upside down of the natural order. Okay, so, so what's going on in Exodus 16? See, some are going to say there's this aphid, and this is actually true. There is an aphid uh, in the Sinai area that eats part of a tamar the sap of a tamarind tree and then, and then secretes, and it sounds really gross, but he secretes this sugary substance that coats the ground, and you can pick it up and you can eat it. Like, it's like, a, it's like sugar. You're like, I don't want to do that, right? But, um, and so some would say that's exactly what's happening here. And that the, the quails have migration roots. God brings them down at night. They capture them and that's how this happened. Now, let me just say for, so y'all know, in case that makes you mad, I'm in the miracle camp, not the providential camp. Now here's why. Because I can't explain how that happened. If that's what God was doing, I can't explain how that happened for 40 years continuously. 
And I can't explain how those bugs apparently shut off every sixth day and gave them double what they needed on day six. And I can't explain how that little wafer gives you all the nutrients you need for sustaining you for 40 years. You follow me? So it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this just being God's providence. Um, but let me say this. I honestly don't care where you land on that because either way, God gets the glory. Let, let, me, let me read to you this extended quote uh, from Alec Motyer again. Again, let me just preface this. He is a very conservative scholar. He believes in the miracles of God. He just happens to believe that in this case, this is providence. He says this, when the people came to Marah, that's where Lucas was last week, and the disappointment of the undrinkable water, the Lord showed Moses a tree. That's literally what the word says in chapter 15, verse 25. In other words, the remedy had, long, had been in preparation long before the need arose and was there ready and waiting. It was an anticipatory providence. The same can be said of the man and the quails. Man is apparently a natural phenomenon on the Sinai. is remarkable here only for the quantity in which it was available. The quails following their annual migratory path and flying as usual by night flopped exhausted to the ground at daylight to be caught easily and so provide for the needs of the Lord people. Okay, agree with it or not? Now listen. None of this is said in order to deny or evade the miraculous in Scripture. Of course, the Creator can do what He pleases in His own world, but it speaks of love, care, and power at an even deeper level. If we imagine the Creator God saying to Himself as He made the world, listen to this. My people one day pass by here, mortally thirsty disappointed by undrinkable water and I will plant a tree to wait for them. My people will one day pass this way threatened with death by starvation. And at that point, my aphids will work and my quails will fly. It will all be ready for them. And one day I'll lead my people, this is coming up in a few chapters, to Rephidim and they will be in desperate need of water. So in anticipation of the day, I'll provide an underground supply and mark it with a great rock so that it can't be missed. The ordering of creation and the providence of the creator await and meet the arising needs of the redeemed on their pilgrimage. Our needs have already been anticipated in his foreseeing, far-seeing grace, which is ever on our side. Now look, to that I say, amen and glory to God. I don't know if that's what's happening in chapter 16, but I know that happens in our life as Christians all the time. In fact, notice this in verse seven. He says, you're gonna see the glory of God. How are they gonna see the glory of God? Well, we've seen it already in the book of Exodus. They, we've seen it in these judgments and these massive signs and wonders that God is doing. And now he's saying in verse seven, you know how you're gonna see the glory of the Lord? in his provision of daily food. Do you see it that way, Christian? Lucas and I were up in Tahoe a few weeks ago and we were eating with some pastors and I was at a table, he was another table and, um, and I'm, um, Michelle and I were eating with a pastor and his wife and we bowed a prayer over the meal and he prays and he says essentially this, thank you, Jesus, for these little shafts of glory that we see laying out before us. That's a different way of looking at your lunch today, isn't it? 
Instead of scarfing it down, oh, it's hungry. Like stop and just go, here is a glimpse of God's glory to me. He didn't have to do this. And it's glorious, isn't it? It's glorious. Because God in his providence is providing everything we need. Listen, the, the, the manna, the quail, this is all just foretaste for Israel after 40 years of wandering of what they're going to get when they get to the promised land. It's just but a foretaste of what's coming when our journey is over and we make it to the celestial city having been sustained every step of the way by a glorious God who has provided for all our needs. Amen? pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your glory in that goodness. That we will wander if we're not already yet. There's coming a day of wilderness wandering for every follower of Jesus. There's no such thing as untested faith, but God, we're going to see miraculous and providential provision. We're going to see things where you, we realize decades ago, you caused a chain of reaction of events that were waiting for this moment to provide for our needs. That's true of the meal that we will partake of in just a, a, a few minutes or hours. All the ways that farmers were not even connected to grew the crop or the livestock or whatever it is that will now land on our plate because God, you meticulously care for your people so that most of us today will not go to bed hungry but provided for. Thank you, Jesus. And most of all, God, you give us the bread of life that will nourish us and sustain us until you call us home. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.